Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Another ATP season is in the books. We have Novak Djokovic winning his sixth ATP Tour Finals, trying Roger Federer. Now, while Davis Cup action is still underway, we are here to do a podcast with the good friends Andrew Burton and Nick Nemiroff of the Big Three account to talk about how the Tour Finals concluded and we can exchange some notes and what does this it mean in the big picture of what ADP 2023 is going to look like. On that note, welcome, guys. Hey, thanks for, how you doing? Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, uh, it's good to have you both. I don't know when was the last time, if we ever, if the three of us ever got together, we've been part of Tennis with an Accent through writing and podcasting over the years. So I think this should be a good discussion. Uh, this is Thanksgiving week, I think short week for work. So let me start with you, Andrew. Novak Djokovic has tied Roger Federer uh, as a six-time ATP Finals champion, uh, leaving behind Ivan Lendl and Pete Sampras. The, you know, so now he's at the top of this uh, mountain with Federer. Uh, did you see the week uh, unfold with whatever expectations, expectations you had with Djokovic and the field? Yeah, I, I'm not quite sure how to paint the week. Uh, I, I will confess that um, going into the, the semifinals with Novak now being 35, and um, through the week, particularly with the match against Medvedev, looking as if uh, you know, towards the end of the third set, the strenuousness, the physicality of the match was clearly affecting him. I, I sort of half expected that it would play out like some of Federer's later World Tour Finals performances. He'd make his way through the round robin round, but then potentially fall to a younger player in the semi-finals. As we know, that didn't happen. The Novak looked very strong against Taylor Fritz, and he looked very strong indeed against Kaspar Ruud. And when he's holding up the trophy, there's, I don't know if it was a sense of inevitability, certainly some of the, the, the commentary was, you know, this, this was very much what we expected. Uh, it was slightly surprising for me, but then one of the things that I think that, that, that everyone who's been watching tennis for the last 10 years or so is going to say that you shouldn't be surprised that on an indoor hard court in the World Tour Finals that Novak Djokovic is going to be there at the death. No, well said. So I'm going to just feed the same question to you, Nick, with, maybe with an added layer. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, you do a lot of stats with your big three account. By the way, congrats to that for 20-some thousand uh, followers. So you do you do pull very interesting statistics on the three men. So mm-hmm. my, my underlying feeling was, of course, I know how these championships have played out in the last seven years. Djokovic last one in 2015, and he's too good a player to have not won in the last six years. I think he missed one edition. But do you think statistically this was like a long gap for someone of his caliber? I don't know who to remove that he should have won that year or this year. But for me, he was a standout favorite coming in and he delivered as, as expected. Did you see it similarly, given his last six years of the championships? I mean, I expected him to win the tournament going in, even with the loss in Paris. 
I still expected him to, to win the tournament, but interesting point that, that Andrew makes. Uh, and also g- given who he's lost to in, in recent years, um, you know, like in the final in 2018, he lost to Hachinov. 2016, it was Murray. Um, you know, it was a uh, team. And then last year it was Zverev. It was all guys who weren't named Dahl and, and Federer, who he lost to. So on one hand, I, I really felt confident that he was going to win. But on the other hand, it's like, all right, well, if he loses in the semifinal, Rublev, um, or, um, you know, or sorry, in the final, if he lo- lost to Rude, Rude catches fire, um, you know, would have been like, it would have been surprising, but it wouldn't have been, you know, the biggest shock in the world, especially in a, in the best of, of three format. So Andrew, one more thing, one more thought from you, because, you know, these tennis is again, you know, like an individual sport and it is purely a matchup sport, unlike basketball where a coach can put a different defender or, you know, can bench you if, you know, the lineup doesn't favor you, but in tennis, there's no hiding. There are no easy draws, especially if you run into your nemesis. That being said, I had the feeling when the semifinal lineup was, uh, confirmed, I thought only a red lining Taylor Fritz may have an outside of a chance against Djokovic. Of course, that being said that Djokovic is playing too close to his, you know, his good form ability uh, because like the names that uh, Nick mentioned, like Zverev and a team, some of the guys who can, you know, stay, who has a baseline power, but also have weapons. Did you see it similarly, like with the, with the, with the lineup that uh, Taylor Fritz was possibly the only guy who had a shot at causing an upset here? I thought that Fritz had a better shot of beating Novak than Kasper Ruud did. Uh, I, I think Ruud is a good matchup for Novak. Uh, one of the Hawkeye stats that was shown during the final was that Ruud was hitting his baseline shots half the time from three meters or more behind the baseline whereas Novak was hitting 50% of his shots within three meters of the baseline. So Novak had excellent court position against Rude, uh, who can hit a heavy ball, he can, he can hit for power as well. But it, it just felt like it was going to be really hard for Rude to get Novak out of position. And... Fritz, um, if you look at the score in the semi-final, you think well, that's that's really pretty tight. Uh, it was two tie-break sets, seven-five in the first set, seven-six, uh, sorry, eight-six in the second set. But then, when you break down the um, the statistics on serve, there's something that uh, Craig O'Shaughnessy, who uh, publishes on Twitter while Twitter is still here as brain game tennis. And several years ago, he was talking about one of Novak's matches, I think against Joe Wilfried Songa, where he he broke down the scores. And I think Songa won about 30% of his second serves. And uh, Craig said, it's as if Novak has three serves to one, that Songa was winning 75 to 80% of his first serves but only 30% of his, his second serves. And, and that's a really big hill to climb. And in the semifinal against uh, Fritz, Novak won 75% of his first serve points and 61% of his second serve points. 
Taylor won 76% of his first serve points, roughly the same as Novak, but only 33% of his second serve points. So one in three. So Novak effectively is playing three serves to one against Fritz. Fritz was able to make it through to two tie breaks. But then if you're playing three serves to one in a, in a tie break, it's, it's a tough hill to climb. So, um, yeah, the Novak, I, I had another conversation with uh, Skip Schwartzman, who um, is a very frequent guest on uh, Tennis with an Accent podcasts. And, and we were talking about how Novak's game has, has really reoriented around uh, protecting his serve in the last five or six years or so. He's very, very effective on serve now. And that's just another weapon in uh, an arsenal full of weapons. No, that's an excellent point because that also gives him the added freedom. Like he's the guy who's more likely to break you. But if he's holding with such, such ease, it does, you know, even... It does kind of like expand the, the, the weaponry. So uh, along the same points, right, along the Novak conversation, uh, Nick, you made a tweet like what, a couple of days ago about Djokovic if he had Wimbledon points. And me and Andrew were talking about the same thing. If the Wimbledon points counted, Djokovic probably ends the year as well, number two, maybe like 40 or 50 points behind Carlos Alcaraz. And then as a whole, mm-hmm. you know, due to the COVID restrictions and the choices for Novak and, you know, the government restrictions, whatever, he left, I think, roughly 8,000 points on the table. Not that he's going to win all those. There are two majors in U.S. and Australia, and then there are four Masters 1,000 events, which he was not part of. So how do you see uh, the Novak algorithm? Like, you know, if he had played, I know it's a counterfactual, but a lot of people have those opinions. Uh, do you want to stay, stay clear of that conversation or you want to have a say in it that Djokovic would have been a clear number one? And then I'll come back to Andrew with a follow-up on this. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty likely. I don't think it's a huge stretch to imagine that if he had played a few more of these tournaments that he would have ended the year number one, um, being only, you know, 40, 50 points behind Alcaraz. I think it's totally reasonable to to say that he would have been number one. And I, But, you know, at the end of the day, he's not. And he, he's, he's, you know, not number one. He's, but next year, I think he's going to have a great chance to to get back to that. And I would be genuinely surprised if he doesn't given how motivated he'll likely be not only to, to get back to that, but also to take the lead in the grand slam count, given what we've seen from Nadal at the end of the year, it looks like Djokovic is far and away the best player going in to, to 2023 with Alcaraz dealing with an injury Nadal, not looking at, not looking his best. I think Djokovic can be super motivated. And one other quick point going back to Djokovic's serve one thing I just thought about when Andrew said that was I was at the U S open last year and I saw Djokovic play uh, in 2021. And it was the first time I had seen him play in person in, in a while. And, uh, or actually that close, I had seen him play in 2019, but I was way up in the stands. I was pretty much courtside for this one. And I had gone a couple of times that year and it was noticeable how much further in the court Djokovic was tossing uh on his serve and how much further than the court he was landing um, compared to pretty much almost every other player. And he's made other technical changes as well, but it was pretty astounding to see how far on the court his toss was going and just the ease with which he was creating his power on his serve. And it was pretty great to see that, um, you know, in person. And it's just, a, you know, shows you why he's been so effective on serve and the second serve 
second serve as well. I mean, the second serve is usually one where people expect the players to toss the ball a little further back. But even for Novak, even on the second serve, you can still toss the ball pretty far in front as long as you're tossing to the left to get, you know, the right amount of kick. Hmm. Matt has said on the podcast a few times that I don't really disagree there that Djokovic serve is, considering all things, you know, is easily top two serve in the business because, you know, Isner and Opelka have their say, but Djokovic just backs it up so much more, you know, cohesively, like it's a very tough man to break. So, Andrew, same thing to you. I tossed around the ranking point if you want to add something. I know counterfactuals are one thing, but uh, even if Wimbledon countered Djokovic was number two, not and missing number one by 40 points, and if he scores, say, minimum 3,000 points, you're looking at a world number one. You're not giving any, any majors, but if he plays everything, it's easy to see him grabbing at least three to 4,000 points out of those 8,000 math, and he's the number one. So my larger question to you is, what do you feel about the counterfactual? And secondly, uh, what do you feel about the ranking points? Like if Alcaraz can secure the number one ranking, again, not your typical year, at 6,800, how does it measure to the last gen or the overall big three analysis that you have uh, kept record of? Is, you know, uh, talk about that. Was 6,800 good enough to be world number one in any other year? No, although, again, you, you, you've you got um, no points awarded for Wimbledon. You have Shanghai not played this year, so you're, you're, you're taking those points out of, the, out of the equation. But it's, it's quite unusual in the you know, big three slash big four era to have anybody being world number one sub 10,000. And Djokovic and Nadal were sort of peaking up at around the, the 16,000 level. Federer was 8,000 when it was the old ranking points, which wouldn't be far off 16,000 now. So, you know, this is a, a smaller number now. Uh, when we're talking counterfactuals here, a thing that's worth noting is that neither Djokovic nor Nadal uh, played 50 matches this year. Uh, Novak, I think, played 49 matches. Rafa played 47. That's really, really small to, to get into the top 10. And one thing when we talk about both players' longevity, the 2020, 2021 and 2022 seasons have been quite unusual. And one of the things that may make them effective at 36 and 37 is less wear and tear at 33, 34, 35. No, that's an excellent point. I mean, you know, like you can look at the glass half empty or half full. So Nick, me and Andrew were talking about this. I gave him, uh, you know, my analogy and he kind of agreed with it. So Djokovic missing time this year, of course, you know, I believe he's clearly the best player in the world. Uh, and, you know, whatever the reasons are, he could have won at least a major, if not two. But we'll never know now. But the flip side is him being uh, off action for as long, you know, and then even last few years because of COVID limited uh, calendar has been in action in 20 and this year for Djokovic in 22. You mm -hmm. think this kind of is also like going to help him play at a, at a high level, even for an extended period. He's, he's not showing any signs of slowing down. But the flip side is, you know, you take a few months off, 
it gives you more longevity. I mean, could that be a positive for some Novak fans that he's going to be around a lot longer because each season has its physical toll? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the way Nadal and Djokovic both play, it's an extremely physical brand of tennis. Look at how how much Djokovic is exerting playing defense, how much he's stretching out for some of these shots. And, uh, you know, it's not like Federer, where Federer playing a less physically demanding style of play, shorter points, uh, just the stroke production in general from Djokovic and Nadal is more physically intense and requires more toll on the body. So, yeah, the fact that they're playing less matches at this juncture of their career is significant. Don't think it can be, uh, don't think it can be uh, overstated. Um, and, yeah, I mean, in, their, in, in, in both Nadal and Djokovic year where they won their most amount of matches, they, Djokovic won 82 and Nadal won 82. Um, and, you know, that's a lot more than what they won this year. Uh, so at this point of their career, it probably uh, is going to end up helping them, and they'll probably end up being a lot more selective as, as the years progress, kind of like Federer was before he retired. Sure. So, and, and a common question for you both, whoever wants to go first. So Rafa Nadal won two majors and, of course, did not play a lot of matches due to injury himself. It becomes the first man since Roger Federer in 2017 to have won, I think, two majors and not be world number one. And we didn't expect this to be in a, in a year where, you know, like Andrew said, you know, like it was a 6,800, not like 10,000 uh, was a benchmark to be ranked number one. But Carlos Alcaraz, credit to him, played a very impressive calendar year. He he won a few big tournaments outside of majors, and he had enough on the point board to get past Rafa Nadal, who, despite a cut-down schedule, had still had two majors. So your thoughts on you know two majors and missing the ranking and Alcaraz's year? Whoever wants to take it first. Yeah, so I mean, I think the the you know the big point of the year for Nadal was obviously Wimbledon, the match against Fritz, um, and where he you know obviously won, but tore his abdomen. And let's say he you know, gets to the semis, beats Kyrgios, gets to the final, somehow beats Djokovic, not tearing his abdomen. He gets, he would not get any points there. And then he goes to the U.S. Open. And if he doesn't tear his abdomen, maybe he does better. Uh, obviously, he would, he would do better. But um, still, it's the last major of the year and his age, you know, who says, who's, you know, who says he's going to win it. Um, but I think the fact that he tore his abdomen was obviously a, a, a huge, obviously a huge, uh, hamper on the season that looked like it was, you know, he was how he could have been halfway to, uh, or three fourths of the way, uh, to winning the, the calendar year slam. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you play the whole season and it's, it's not only about the grand slams, you know, for Djokovic and Nadal at this point, it's probably a lot more about the grand slams, but for everyone else who's playing, you know, there's a lot more at stake as well. Right, and if I can take the the Alcaraz um, angle on this, I think from you know possibly March or April of this year, certainly after um, you know winning the two Masters tournaments, it was it was conventional wisdom that Alcaraz was going to be the world number one sometime in the next eighteen months or so. Did, did anyone at the start of the season have Carlos Alcaraz as the year-end number one? If you did, I want to know what your lottery numbers are. Uh, <laughs> I think that, that there's another player that we'll, we'll probably get around to mentioning who's, who's part of the same generation as Alcaraz, 
who's had an even more meteoric rise, possibly, than Alcaraz. Uh, but having Alcaraz as, as number one uh, sometime in 2022, 2023, 2024, not particularly surprising. And it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, assuming that, that Rafa heals, uh, assuming that Novak is fully rested and, and plays the right schedule, where we are at the end of 2023, I certainly wouldn't um, you know, hand the baton to, to Novak presumptively. I think there'll be a lot more uh, of a scrap for it. And then once you get into the, the 2024 timeframe, I think it gets even more interesting as you, as you start to look at some of the younger players making their way up. Uh, Oji Aliassim uh, still continues to make steady progress, though he hasn't really had the, the big breakthrough yet. So, uh, you know, Alcaraz being the year-end number one, in an odd year, okay, but Alcaraz over the next five to ten years is going to be a quite a good player. No, no, no denying that. But, but uh, uh, talking about the ranking, I mean, I was trying to process when to bring this question. This may be the ideal time. Me and Mark Woodford discussed briefly when we were talking with the Turin Field a couple of episodes ago. Uh, let's talk about Stefano Sissipas. First man, possibly, if he had... Uh, you know, the chance to end years number one since John McEnroe 40 years ago. He would have been the first man to do it year and number one without winning a major. Of course, it did not happen. Mert is also big on this. I'm big on this. Again, this is not your, your usual year, but like we both are advocates of you play the season. Slams are heavily pointed, rightfully so, because they're the pinnacle of the sport. But thoughts on Sissipas' season, Andrew, first, that he came within a mathematical you know, equation of winning all five matches and number one ranking was his. And boy, that would have opened up a whole different conversation. But I would have been in Camp Sissipas because the, for me, the race is about accumulating the most points. Yeah, you do it with more majors, it's good. But I don't put any asterisk at Sissipas, you know, edge Carlos Alcaraz as a year in number one. Your thoughts. And Nick, you can give your thoughts after the same question. Mm-hmm. I, I'm completely... I think I'm completely in the same camp uh, as you are, Sakib. I think that you play the full season. Uh, he he has the Monte Carlo uh, win this year, so he, he he did win a Masters. But yes, the 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 year end number one is the player with the the most points. You win points by making it to semifinals, to finals, and 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 winning big tournaments. Um, so if, if he'd have, uh, run through the field in the world tour finals, then, um, we'd be saying, well done, good season. He played, uh, 85 matches this year. Um, he played the full season. Yeah. I mean, I agree with both of you. I think that if you have the most points, you should be number one. There's really no... Question about it. Um, I, I could see someone saying, ah, well, he didn't win a slam. Maybe he, he doesn't deserve it because he didn't win a slam. He didn't win one of the four biggest tournaments. But at the end of the day, you know, he played all, he played, he, he played the full schedule. He earned the most points. That's what the ranking system dictates uh, how the number one ranking is, is earned. So to me, there's, there, there'd be, there would have been no issue with him being number one. 
um, if he had gotten there. And obviously people would have been like, uh, people would probably say, yeah, he's the weakest number one, but he's, he still would have, he still would have earned it. it would have kind of brought us back to, you know, however, I guess it's over 10 years ago now, but with Wozniacki being number one for so long without winning a slam until she eventually did. Absolutely. I think the, I think the other thing about Sitsipas though, that, you know, if I'm thinking about carrying into 2023 or 2024, and I don't know what your thoughts are on this, Nick, but Sitsipas was in the mix and he finishes the year number four. I didn't really see him make a, a big advance this year in terms of, of his play, maybe hitting the returns on the backhand side with a little bit more, more emphasis and a little bit more aggression. But I, I didn't see him make a big jump up. Whereas a, a, a guy like Taylor Fritz, I, I think, really did improve. I mean, he ended up the year on the number nine spot, but I think he was a real worthy competitor uh, in the World Tour finals. And, and I wouldn't have had him at that point this time last year. Kasparud made several steps forward. We've mentioned Alcaraz, um, other guys like uh, Holger Rune did very well. Um, sinners potentially someone who's going to be in the mix in the next couple of years so Sitsipas being number one he'd have deserved it for his play but it's not as if you you look at 2022 and say wow Stefanos is is a is a different player to the player he was in 2020 or 2021 yeah I mean for sure his his weaknesses to me are his serve technique on the serve from my perspective, from a teaching perspective, um, you know, the serve is, it's a similar boat of Zverev where the rhythm of the serve is, 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 is off. Uh, where if you watch some, where if you watch players like Felix and Casper Rude, where the, on their serve, the tossing arm and the hitting arm are very, very fluid and in, in, in motion with each other. Since he passes are, is, is disjointed, uh, like Zverev, Zverev's is, is far worse. Uh, but Sitsipas, in my opinion, could still gain more power if he if he did that, uh, if he fixed that part of his serve. Um, he also has an issue with rotation, tough to go into on, you know, without video, but he has an issue with over-rotating on his serve, um, which limits power. Uh, and then, you know, his backhand, he, he, he slices way too much from defensive positions. But even if you started choosing not to slice, hitting open stance with a one-handed backhand, defending out of that corner, is very is is very difficult. Um, uh, so yeah, fixing those two parts of his game would be would be huge. And then of course the number one thing I think he needs to fix is the mental side of the game. The the spat that he had with his parents in the semifinal against Rublev was pretty difficult to watch. Honestly, where he hit the ball in their direction after he felt that, I guess that they were giving him too much too much instruction or they were cheering too much, whatever or you know too much feedback, whatever they were saying to him, he didn't like. And we've seen the issues with him in the past with his, with his dad. Um, so I definitely think he's, he's got to fix the mental side. And after the match, he said that Rublev didn't deserve to win and that he was the better player um, and that he has more tools and, you know, whether or not that's true, it's just, that's just not what you say after losing a match like that, especially when the last two sets were six, three, six, two. So, uh, yeah, I had this question in mind. I don't know where to put it, but this is a perfect opportunity. And I can also give my opinion, you know, because on this one, and then you both can weigh in. So Nick kind of does say, like, Sissipa shouldn't have spoken. 
but Andrew, you've attended press conference yourself and uh, someone, not someone, I think many people have said on Twitter in the past that a losing athlete sometime is, uh, you know, you, you need more editing. You go to a press conference, you speak your mind. Sometimes you get overcritical, sometimes you get salty. And we all probably have those moments, but there are no cameras watching us. So you think it's fair to judge Asisipas, who definitely was out of line to say that. He comes as a sour, you know, sour loser. But Andrew, do you think, uh, you know, being salty right after a tough loss, uh, you know, can we cut some leeway there? Or how do you see those press conferences? Is it truly a reflection of, uh, you know, a, a player ABC or you don't put too much stock into it? Big question, but you can go first. And my opinion is we should give him some leeway. I think so. I, if I was reporting from tennis tournaments, the players that I hated were the ones who who didn't take any of the questions seriously or or just gave you boilerplate. And I remember being at Indian Wells uh, for the 2009 match where Federer lost to Murray in, in three sets. And, you know, we... we those of us who were actually watching in the stadium came back into the press room and they said Federer in, is in the interview room now. And it was, holy moly, ran into the interview room. Federer had come off court in his gear, carrying his bags. He wanted to get the press conference over and he was absolutely unvarnished. There were a couple of times I saw Federer a bit like this uh, after his loss to, to Gilles Simon as well in Toronto in 2008, just a real black mood. And, and, and you get a sense of someone then. Um, so you, you play tennis with your emotions as well as your racket and you know, being able to listen to how Federer processed that loss, being able to listen to how Stefanos processed the loss I, I don't I, I don't mind it and so that's that's just my view yeah I mean I think I mean I don't think I, I think the issue for me is that it's just like a, a striking a lack of accountability in the sense of all right you lose a match and I guess some people like if, if, if you lose a match some people might be upset if you say I wasn't good enough right you go and you lost a match a close match and you don't give credit to the opponent. Uh, but, but you say I wasn't good enough and people might be upset at that because you don't give credit to the opponent. But Sitsipas not only didn't say that, didn't say that he went the complete opposite in a match that he lost one. He didn't give any credit to Rublev and he went even further by essentially insulting his game saying how one dimensional it is. Um, and, uh, you know, he pretty much said that he was the better player. And to me, someone going, there's a difference between being honest um, and I can appreciate a player not always being like, ah, my opponent was too good. They deserved it. Yada, yada, all the normal stuff and saying that I needed to be better. But he just said I was better, which is such an odd thing to say when you've lost a match, especially the last two sets, especially the last set. I mean, Rublev was playing really well. And I mean, he was hitting the ball really well. I mean, the, the commentators, forget who they were for that match but the commentators were just in awe of how well he was hitting and it was pretty striking so for Sitsipas to have that response to me was uh was a bit disappointing yeah and also add like two cents to this because you know this could also be subjective right 
this also comes down in my view maybe you guys disagree there's a goodwill each player has created in eyes of you know a larger platform sisipas to me where i see he's a well liked guy by commentators is a huge army of fans of course he makes a couple of these you know uh, pr mistakes here and there but say if if a kerios has said that i think that would have been a bigger problem because kerios hasn't made many friends and even if he's being downright honest and that's how he views a match he would get a lot of uh lot of hate coming his way in a lot of ways deservingly because you know i think it, to me it's about goodwill what have you done for me lately and how do you overall function in this tennis society i think so sisipas i think did get a lot of uh, attention from twitter like for some sort of poor conduct but uh, for my larger point is still i think uh, that's the worst time like andrew said federer comes there with, with his bags he wants out of that place and i've seen two similar si- uh press conferences in Miami but of course they were both well behaved Djokovic and Federer they both lost when I was there but they just came st- st- uh, straight away from the court to attend the press conference so we are not in their mind or psyche to see you know or the mood evaluation but yeah whatever Sitsipas stays said stays on record and hopefully next time if he gets asked the same question there'll be a better reflection so Nick I'll throw this back again to you to Sitsipas same of the Andrew question right did he improve so uh Alex Draskin when he was on the podcast he maintained on Twitter that Nadal Alcaraz Djokovic and Medvedev and even Tsitsipas uh, you know these guys could be tier 1 so do you have a tier 1 tier 2 ranking and where does Tsitsipas fit in that billing order yeah uh good question i mean Tsitsipas i haven't thought about that to be honest but Tsitsipas would not be in the first tier i can tell you right off the bat um if i had a top here right now it would probably be Alcaraz, Djokovic, Nadal and Medvedev. Um and then probably Tsitsipas, Rude, um Rublev below that and then I don't know Zverev maybe belongs in that first one or maybe in between depending on how uh you know how he comes back after the injury but uh yeah I definitely I mean there's just it's just so obvious watching Tsitsipas play Djokovic like the holes in his game um obviously on clay these these holes are 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 less pronounced because his ability to uh take control of points on clay is is much easier given you know how much he is with uh and you know how much control he has over creating angles on that surface um but you know he's lost now eight matches in a row to Djokovic and it's just every time they play you can see uh or maybe it's been nine now oh nine yeah it's been nine um you can just see the just see the the weaknesses and what's preventing him from from getting to the top so nick a, a thought that i had as i was taking a look at some of the players and reflecting on the tournament and the season you you have medvedev in your top tier and i don't think that's controversial but you know same question with sitsipas do you think Daniel really improved this season. If if I'm looking across the season, um you know, he starts it with a bang, uh you know, two sets to love up against Nadal in the Australian Open final. But in in terms of his 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 game in terms of potentially being someone who later on will say hey you guys i remember i saw daniel medvedev play uh is 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 he really on a, an upward trajectory at the moment 
Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. I think, obviously, this was a tough year for him after uh, losing that Australian Open match uh, from a, a very, very uh, seemingly convincing position and a likely winning position, what you would think was a likely winning position from two sets and 3-2, 40 love. Um, but yeah, no, I don't think he's really improved much either, but I would say the difference between him and Sitsipas is that with the tools that he has now, he's proven a lot more in the past. Um, you know, he's been obviously to far more slam finals. He's obviously won a slam final. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, if I was coaching Medvedev, I would definitely change his forehand immediately. Um, and I would ask him from a coaching perspective to get to the net more and start improving his net skills. Cause Obviously, his return, his backhand serve, defensive, you know, prowess is, is is elite. And the forehand can break down. The forehand is the side that, you know, can cause him issues. The technique is super inefficient. Um, I mean, obviously, he still made it work super well, but we're looking for him to win majors and be the best in the world. Uh, some of that stuff would need to be tightened up. Um, but I, I, I really think that, you know, this is going to be one of the things with him one, he's going to be one of these players next year who's who I think is going to have a really good year. I think he just needed the season to end. I think he's going to mentally kind of take this out of his mind, what happened this year. And I, I think he'll be, uh, you know, really motivated to, to improve upon what was a disappointing year after the Australian Open. Of course, the end of the season, the World Tour Finals. I mean, to lose three matches, seven, six in the third set, being serving for the match in two of them, um, and be, and also being super close against Rublev as well, uh, you know, that's tough. And I think he's going to be highly motivated. Uh, will he make the changes that he needs? Honestly, based on what I've seen, it doesn't really seem like it from a technical perspective. But I still think even without that, he has a far better chance of getting to the top and winning slams than Tsitsipas. You get take their two current games the way they are now. I like Medvedev a lot more. Interesting. Sandra, same question to you. I mean, do you have a tier one, tier two separation between, say, certain players? We all can agree that Djokovic and Alcaraz should be tier one, but I want to hear it from you. Uh, it's, yeah, I, I think that the, the likeliest next player to win a slam is probably Daniel Medvedev. I, I wonder a little bit. I... I don't have any real insight into the Russian players and on the, the WTA side, the Russian and the Belarusian players, how much the, um, you know, the atmosphere around the ongoing war in Ukraine, how, how much that is affecting them, whether it's, it's not affecting them at all once they step onto a tennis court or whether uh, practicing going to tournaments, being told that you can't come to some tournaments like Wimbledon, I wonder how much that that's potentially affecting them. Um, the, the next tier, uh, you know, I'm very much looking to the, the younger generation. Uh, I, I'm just going to be fascinated to see uh, what uh, Holger Rune and Yannick Sinner do the next year. Um, you know, you basically look at the the rankings and, and they are what they are. Uh, there are some players who I think are, are, you know, a little bit overachieving. I, you know, as a Brit, seeing Cameron Norrie 
you know, challenging for a top 10 place is interesting, but you, you find it very hard to imagine him being a top four player. Now, maybe he'll surprise me, but that, that would be very hard. Um, Shapovalov is a, is a complete enigma to me. Uh, mm. I, I, kind of expected him to be top five by now and he isn't he's down at number 18 a player who has really improved this season and I didn't expect this is Francis Tiafo. his match against uh, Alcaraz at the US Open this year was tremendous and so was the Alcaraz uh, Sinner match so Tiafo next year not putting him uh, as a as you know, a tier one, I would be very, very surprised if he becomes a tier one player. But he's he's a player with an upwards green arrow for me. And a lot of the other players um, you know, don't have that green arrow. They're, they're sort of stable or, or possibly even declining. And then you've got the ultimate wild card uh, in the sort of the the top 30 mix, which is Nick Kyrgios himself, uh, Grand Slam winner this year in doubles and uh, a finalist in singles. So is 2023 the, the year Nick Kyrgios does something? Uh, the easy answer is no, but he, he is always going to surprise us. Yeah, he's definitely managed to polarise the conversation when we thought he could not because he did play some solid tennis this year. But Andrew, you were, mentioned the word overachieving, and I was thinking, if you both are okay, uh, I sense Casper, who has done a phenomenal year, made final of the two majors, again, final of the year in championships, from predominantly a good clay court player, now he's a well-rounded player, but still he doesn't tick many boxes or many tier one or tier two lists for a lot of people, because we still keep talking about other players, like Felix Ojeali Asim, and when Zverev comes back and Sissipas is still there, but Kasparu is punching below that. So how do you both see him? Uh, is it just a matter of overachieving or has he made steady progress but still lacks a weapon? When would we make him a permanent tier one, maybe a tier two player based on you know what we've seen this year? Nick, you can go first. Yeah, I mean, interesting question because I... I may, I mean, obviously, he's had a great season, and to reach two uh, Grand Slam finals, finals in Miami, um, World Tour finals, finals, you you can definitely, obviously, it's it's easy to say he's overachieved, but if we're looking on the bright side for him and for an ar- a, a, an argument where this might sound odd that he's possibly underachieved. Um, you know, I got to sit and watch him at the U.S. Open this year, practice for an hour, like front row, nice and close, filmed him a lot. Uh, and you look at his backhand, which has slightly improved. He's changed his technique slightly since he came on tour with a slightly higher take back. But really the biggest, you know, issue with his swing on, on the backhand side, which when the racket reaches the bottom of the, the swing, if you look at his swing in slow motion for anyone you know, going, you can go on YouTube right now, just look at his racket at the bottom of the swing and you'll see that his strings are not tilted toward the ground at all. Or if they are, it's very minimal. And if you compare that to someone like Djokovic, uh, it's far more closed. And this is a critical position for, for the two-handed, for any for two-handed or one-handed backhand for any ground stroke to be successful. 
And you saw in the match against Djokovic, he struggled a ton in backhand rallies cross court. And when he had a defender on that side, he was very prone to go to the slice, which in my view is probably representative of the fact that he's, you know, he has this technical weakness in the shot that even though he's improved the shot, it could still get better. Uh, I really like his serve. Obviously, he has a huge forehand. His, his serve technique, I, I really like. He's very level-headed. He's got good movement, probably can improve his defense a little bit. But I, I think he's got improvements to make. So, I mean, for me, if, 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 he, can re- if he can fix that, that position on his backhand, I think that uh, he's going to go – he's going to take uh, – he's going to take an even other uh, another step match against Alcaraz at the U.S. Open. I mean, he was pretty close to getting two sets to one up um, in that match. I think he had set points in the third set. So my, I, I'm pretty high on Casper Rudin. I, I would love to see him make this specific change on his backhand, which it, it can't be, you know, overstated how how big of a change this would be for him. Yeah, I remember something that that Pete Bodo used to say about uh, Nikolai Davidenko. He used to describe. Davidenko is a human litmus test and the Davidenko who reached the highest rank I think of number three in the world but was a perennial number four number five uh, in the ATP he would beat the players ranked below him and he would lose to the players ranked above him now he actually had a pretty good record against Nadal and uh, famously won a, a Miami uh, final against Nadal, and then he had back-to-back victories against Federer at the end of 2009 and the start of 2010. So it wasn't as if he couldn't beat, uh, you know, one of the the top players, but that it, he was someone who who was much less dangerous against the very best players than his ranking would suggest. And I kind of have that sense at the moment with Rude. The, the thing that uh, I was watching throughout the, the last tournament and watching Djokovic, I was convinced that he was going to give Djokovic no trouble, was just how far back he was playing. And it's, it, to me, that, that it, it's a hard way to make a living uh, unless you've got enormous weapons and as Nick says his his forehand he can clobber he can hit a very very heavy forehand his backhand it's much much harder for him to do damage with it um so we'll see I mean he's he's obviously improved in 2021 in 2022 and we'll see how much improvement he stacks onto that in 2023 2024 yeah, and I'm looking now, he's, you know, against the top five, he's three and 14. And uh, six of those losses are against Nadal and Djokovic. So, you know, against the very best, he's, he's, he's definitely struggling. And I totally agree with Andrew's point about his court positioning. I mean, to beat these top guys, you cannot continue to stand so far behind the baseline. It's just, it's just proven to not work. This particularly against Nadal and Djokovic. And you've got to not only get close to the baseline, but you've got to have some willingness uh, to move forward as well, which is, I feel like is something that you don't really see out of this game because, as Andrew was saying, he's so far back. I mean, sure, Nadal and Djokovic is the filter within the filters. You know, there's a top 10 filter, there's a top five filter. <laughs> but, you know, you put them, uh, I mean, most records don't look good. And that's why, uh, you know, 
Carlos Alcaraz's Madrid win kind of put him on the map because we all knew he was destined for, you know, those big things, but to do it back to back, even though it's a very small sample size, but then the counter argument is how many are able to do that. So that's definitely a filter, but another player that I don't want to forget, we've briefly talked about him in this podcast is Felix Ojeda-Yassim. He was my third best, third favorite player uh, to win the ATP finals behind Djokovic and Medvedev because he was an, an amazing indoor run, has won four titles this year, has answered many unanswered questions. So, Andrew, where does this year leave him? He's still obviously very young. I mean, the future has to look bright, but are you impressed with the progress he's made, whatever you've seen this year? And uh, what does he need to do to get in your tier one? Uh, so, excellent season for Felix. I mean, I think this was the season he, didn't he break his, his losing finals duck this season? Yep, earlier in the year. Mm-hmm. And um, he was having a lot of issues with second serves and double faults. And as Nick going to be able to say much more about the technique there than I can, but it seems to me that he's really cleaned that up and he's serving a lot more rhythmically on his second serve than he he was in 2020 and 2021. So having OGLA seem has weapons and I, I think he he's continuing I think his trajectory is steady um, he, he seems to be mentally extremely composed and that is is something that I think is kind of hard to teach uh, famously Federer started his career as someone who was chucking rackets and was seen as soft by the other players that you could you could knock him off his game and then famously, when he was uh, about 20, tw- he was about 21 or 22, he overcame that and then became a, a, a dominant force for a long time. Felix already has that, that level of composure and, and he's pushed the, the top players. I don't know what it's going to take for it to click for him, whether he has the potential uh, he's got the potential. What is it going to take for him to to do that? Is it decision making? Is it decision making in the the five or the ten points that determine a match against the very best? And having the confidence to make the the right decisions in seven out of ten points, so that you you win seven out of ten points rather than you win four out of ten. That might be the thing. Yeah, I mean, I think Felix uh, has a huge game. Obviously, his serve is massive. I, I, I like his technique, the double faults earlier in this year. I'm not sure, in my view, uh, I, I would guess that had something to do with the mental side of the game for him. Um, I think his backhand, you know, at times can can break down just a little bit, but I definitely think it's gotten better. Overall, I think if you look at him and Shapovalov, for a while I viewed both of them as players with massive games, um, but would often, you know, they would often uh, take a lot of risks with the shot selection. I feel like Felix has, you know, improved leaps and bounds and he's become so much more measured and disciplined with his shot selection. So, uh, and we saw at the French Open, I mean, he was so close to beating Rafa. Uh, I, I just think if he keeps going on the course that he's going on, um, 
I think he's going to just keep improving. And I, and I don't see really what would be hindering him. I don't see like a, a huge weakness other than, okay, am I playing the right shots at the right times? Am I not going too big too often? Um, but outside of that, I really like his game. I really like his, his upside. He's mentally composed, super mature, super talented player. Um, yeah. So I'm definitely, definitely high on him. All right. So we're closing in an hour mark. I think uh, if we have not, so let's wrap up this conversation with a projection to how 2023 will look like, or what, what it may look like to you both. Uh, for me, it's clearly, you know, if, uh, if health is not an issue for any player, I still think the conversation is going to go through Djokovic. Uh, it's going to be very interesting how Alcaraz and Runa and some of the other names, you know, uh, rise to the challenge and make their say. And Alcaraz is already the mini conversation. To me, Djokovic is the bigger conversation. Alcaraz can rewrite some very fancy chapters. So, Andrew, you can go first. I mean, what are the big things you 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 envision for 2023? And where does some of these players and some of these questions come from? I think it's, I, I, I think it's exciting. I think it's, it, it, it's still remarkable. I remember going back uh, to 2013 and 2014 and some of the conversations I was involved in, in back then. I was spending some time posting at the Changeover site, which, which was around back then. And there were conversations about, you know, is the big four era over? And Andy Murray's still playing. Roger Federer retired this year. And Novak and Rafa, if someone was to say they'll have three out of the four Grand Slams in 2023 and maybe someone else will sneak one, I don't think the three of us on this call would say, you're crazy. So that aspect mm. of it is is still remarkable to me. Uh you have, I, I think we've gone over most of the, 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 the players that are potentially going to make a, a, a big name for themselves in, in 2023. Holger Runa for me, the, uh, you know, the mix of uh, raw talent and attitude. Uh, you know, Stan Wawrinka had something to say about it, his, his attitude on court. We'll see what what that brings as as we go into twenty twenty three. You know, can one of the established names step up? It it feels to me like it's more of an open field than it was in in the mid twenty fifteens twenty sixteens. I don't know what you think, Nick. Yeah, I, I think that it's going to be heavily driven by Djokovic Nadal until it's shown not to be. Um, until until someone else proves that they're going to consistently beat them, I just don't see I don't I I don't see any reason to to predict that someone else will win. I feel like this we we do this every year, um, and the one guy who has shown that he has the weaponry to to um, to beat them on a regular basis potentially is Alcaraz, but of course he's going to be entering next year with uh, you know the with with injury and I and I do think right now with Alcaraz he's still you know he's still so young I do think in the best of five format against the best players his I think he still has maybe another year or two at that maybe a year probably at that 
level and best of five to really figure out how to best measure his game. Meaning, you know, in, and when he plays someone like Djokovic and, and Nadal and longer points and longer matches, how does he measure his shots and long rallies, when to go for the big shot, when to go for the drop shot. I'm not totally sure if he's going to figure that out 100% next year. Um, so from my perspective, I see, I, I see it very open uh, in the sense of, okay, after Joachim Shadal, there's so many guys that, you know, are going to, you know, make noise, Runa, uh, and Medvedev, um, uh, Alcaraz, Sinner, uh, and Tsitsipas, Rublev. There's, there's like a big group there. And then the one other guy who I'm really curious about next year would be to see if he can make some strides is the one guy who has been the most successful against the big three over the years who still plays. And that's, you know, outside of Andy Murray is uh, Dominic Team. Uh, and I would really love to see Dominic team get back into, into the form he was a few years ago. Cause that would just make the tour so much more fun. Cause I mean, for a while, this guy was doing really well against all three of them. Yeah. And it's, it feels like the injury uh, and, you know, dealing with, you know, potentially changing the way that he's hitting some of his shots. I, I, I it feels like he's still got a long way to go. A, a player that we haven't mentioned who was, uh, top 10 last year, but isn't top 10 this year is Berrettini. Mm, yeah. Berrettini to me is, is, you know, possibly on his day, a little bit like a stands of Rinka, someone that you wouldn't expect to be a finalist week in week out. But if he catches fire in a tournament, um, could, could win one of the, the majors and, uh, Stan, uh, you know, quite famously didn't succeed until he was in his late twenties. And Mateo's 25 now. Uh, so he could be in the mix. Again, I was just looking at last year's uh, top 10 and seven out of the top 10 are top 10 again this year. So there, there hasn't been this huge amount of, of, of turnover apart, you might think, from Alcaraz vaulting to, to number one. So there are, there are a few names uh, that, that could be in the mix. If the, the top 10 at the end of 2023 looks roughly similar to the top 10 in 2022, I wouldn't be entirely surprised. Um, I wonder with Nadal uh, if we're getting close to the end of the road as we were towards uh, 2020, 2021 for Federer. Uh, I, I, I just wonder how much longer he's going to be able to bear up because there, there are so many different injuries now cropping up with him and, and obviously his history. That's a good yeah. point. I, I was thinking the same myself. Sorry, Nick. But he did win two slams, but after that, he's played a very cut-down schedule. Uh, but uh, he did finish the year in finals uh, by competing and also beating Casper Ruud. And now he has a Latin America, I think, exhibition tour coming up with Casper Ruud himself. So let's see if, uh, if Nadal's in good health. He'll definitely be part of the conversation. And But Andrew, you do raise a good point. The end does seem a lot closer than it ever was, but... You know, again, we have to look back six months ago. He won. He did win number 22 in uh, in Paris. So, Nick, you were saying something? 
No, I was just going to add that I well, I think good good call on on Berrettini. That's obviously someone else who huge weapons and can always be a threat. So there's so many guys, um, but I think we're going to look back a year from now and 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 really really think that 2023 is going to determine which of the big three. Obviously, it's going to be either Nadal or, or Djokovic. Which one of them will end up with uh, with more Grand Slams? Uh, if Nadal can somehow win two more this year and maybe Djokovic only only wins one, uh, you know, Nadal would be at 24, Djokovic at 22, maybe that's enough. Um, so I really think that 2023 is going to be a year where we're, where we're really focused on, uh, you know, who's going to end up having that edge in the, in the Grand Slam count between Nadal and Djokovic. Yeah, the bat lines are drawn. I'll throw in one more name. Who's definitely not top tier or you know top ten close even now, but one of my favorite players is Seb Koda. I think he has enormous mm-hmm. upside if he can put in some muscle, and you know he's six five and only weighs one seventy five lbs. He, to me, is the most talented of the American guys right now. Uh, but the future, let's see. He's trending a little slow. He's twenty two, but I, I have a feeling he'll be anywhere ranked between twenty to fourteen next year by the time we're having this conversation. Well, let me throw American another couple right of names. <laughs> let me throw sure. another couple of names in the mix. Uh, if we're talking Americans, uh, Brandon Nakashima, who just won the um, the the Young Guns tournament, and that seems to be a uh, you know a gateway to success given the past. And uh, Jensen Brooksby, they're both low in the in the top fifty right now. But uh, I wonder what the next year would bring for them. Good call out, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I like, yeah, I mean, I like Brooksby's game. Uh, really like Nakashima's game. I also really enjoy watching Tommy Paul as well. So it's pretty, uh, pretty exciting time for the Americans. And then, you know, obviously Tiafo and Fritz had an amazing year. So I think having this generation of American players versus the, the generation of big serve, big forehand of Query, uh, Isner, um, you know, maybe you can also throw Steve Johnson in there. Um, I think this is kind of like a refreshing, refreshing wave of, of American play that we're seeing. And I'll throw in one Brit as well, who is um, Jack Draper, mm-hmm. just 20 years old. But uh, I think in the last six months or so, he's made a bit of a move and he's finishing at number 42. So one to watch. Hey, Jack Draper could be the perfect end to this podcast. I think we exchanged a lot of common notes and uh, and good insights from both both of you as expected. Hopefully the listeners do enjoy the show. And uh, I'll be bringing in more interviews. I have some good podcasts lined up. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And Matt and I will resume normal duty to preview the Australian hardcore season the first week of January. Uh, enjoy the holidays. And I'll call upon Andrew and Nick and Mert you know, to add more accents as they've always had to tennis with an accent. And we'll be back with a more regular stream of shows. Uh, Like most of the listeners know, this was a tough year. I didn't do much podcasting, but we have picked up some momentum and we'll keep going. And Australian Open is what, eight or seven weeks away. Thank you both for joining. It was tremendous as always. Let's do this again in the near future. Thanks, Akib. Appreciate the time. Cheers. Uh, Good talking to you, Nick.